Hi, everyone. Um, Let's just pray before we read together. Heavenly Father, as we read your word, fill us with your spirit. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love and strength to follow on the path you set before us. In Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Our first reading is from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 18 to 22. And I, because of their actions and their imaginations, am about to come and gather all nations and tongues, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to Libya, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. And they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord, on horses and chariots and wagons and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them, as the Israelites bring their grain offerings, to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. Our second reading is from Romans chapter 15, verses 14 to 24. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge and competent to instruct one another. I have written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, Those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I've often been hindered in coming to you. But now that there is is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Let me just add my welcome as well. Thanks so much for joining us, particularly if you are new. Um, we've changed the clocks this morning, so if you're uh, falling asleep right now, I'm going to put up a really provocative, controversial image to wake you up. Um, I'm sure... <laughs> People are like, I'm nervous now. Um, so we have three people here, right? I'm sure almost all of you know who they all are. Andrew Tate, uh, Joe Rogan, and Jordan Peterson. If you don't know, I have a tattoo just like that right there, actually. Um, and these are three really different people in many ways. Andrew Tate, of course, in particular, different from the other two in that he 
is deeply misogynistic and abusive and is, I think, under, you know, under investigation for crimes. Um, but all three of them have some weird things in common, despite their huge differences, huge differences, and I'm not trying to lump them together. All three of them have massive online followings, particularly in the UK. Um, as is widely discussed, um, so I'm not saying anything original here, um, I never do, uh, the three of them have massive followings, in particular, amongst young men. Um, Joe Rogan's podcast, I think, is the most popular podcast of all time. Uh, Jordan Peterson has, you know, an academic who has viral YouTube videos, okay? We have some academics in this room. None of us are watching them on YouTube. <laughs> what, is, what is this phenomena that, that unites these three seemingly very different men, and why have they captured the imagination of young people in this country? One of the things that a lot of people have commented is that all three of them have a very similar tone. Um, Joe Rogan, when you look at the, the, the clips of him that has gone viral, oftentimes there are clips about basically sorting yourself out speaking to people who are maybe drifting or who are lost and saying, get your life together, make something of yourself, live a life that matters. Peterson very much being the same, famous for saying, stand up straight with your shoulders back, clean your room, sort yourself. All three of them also have a similar tone, a tone that is not invitational. It's not an ambiguous tone. It's not an exploratory tone. In all three cases, it is a commanding, direct, assertive tone, which says, this is how it is, this is how you should live your life, do it. Now, I was at a, a, a conference for church leaders recently, and I heard something which I've heard actually quite a few times, I've had, had similar conversations with people here about it, is to say, why is it that these three men can capture the imaginations of a nation, and yet Christian leaders can't? How many people follow Joe Rogan's podcast? If you go and look at how many people download uh, my podcast and listen to my sermons, I don't think it compares. And so people say, is that because we need to adopt this tone? Is this because church leaders, and particularly maybe people like me, are not very direct, not very confrontational? We don't tell it like it is. We're maybe more apologetic. We're maybe more invitational. And is something missing? Do we need a bit more of this commanding, tell it like it is approach? You know, this isn't new. This trend of young people, and particularly young men, seeking someone that will tell them the, the way you're living your life now isn't working and there's a better way. I don't know, has anyone ever read this book, Walden? You might have read it in like an early modern literature class. It's a famous classic piece of literature from a couple centuries ago. And this guy named Henry David Thoreau doesn't have a podcast, isn't on YouTube, but he has a similar message. He decides that the way the young people of his generation are living is kind of meaningless and shiftless and weightless. And so he decides, I'm gonna go into the woods, I'm gonna build my own house, I'm gonna kill my own food, and I'm gonna live as a kind of masculine person off in the wild. And this is how he describes uh, what he was all about. He said, I see young men whose misfortune it is to have inherited farms, houses, barns, and cattle, for these are more easily acquired than got rid of. Better if they had been born in the open pasture and suckled by a wolf. 
that they might, have been, they might have seen with clearer eyes what field they were called to labor in. In other words, they're giving their life to the wrong thing. Who made them serfs of the soil? Why should they begin digging their graves as soon as they are born? How many a poor immortal soul have I met smothered under life's load? The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Notice that same tone, no question asking, no ambiguity, direct, commandeering, commanding, saying live a life that is worth something, not the life you're living now. So is that what we need more of in the church? Well, interestingly, if that is a cultural trend going on, there's also what you might think of as the very opposite trend. We also live in a culture where there are church leaders who have done precisely that. They have led and spoken in a way that brooks no questions, that has no ambiguity, that is absolutely certain how people should live and what they should do. And what, in many cases, that has led to is an epidemic of the abuse of power in the church. Now, there's famous podcasts in the U.S. about pastors that have abused their power, but actually it's, it's easily as common, perhaps even per capita, more common in the U.K. There is pastor after pastor who, because of their absolute confidence in who they are and what God has called them to do, have taken this very direct, challenging approach and have run people over, crushed whoever got in their way, and have abused the office that God gave them. So, I've just set up an invitation to you all to come into the neurotic space that is my own mind. I'm gonna tell you one of the many things that keeps me up at night, I'm totally serious, that I get super stressed about and I can't go to bed. And I hope it keeps you up about, I hope you leave this place a little bit more neurotic than you came. Because what keeps me up at night so often is asking, am I too passive? Am I too weak? Am I too invitational? Am I not willing to call it like it is with myself and with others? Or, on the other hand, am I the opposite? Is there this same dark potential to be too self-confident, too self-assured, too assertive? And I think many of us will feel that tension in ourselves. If there's a figure that represents that duality, I can't think of a better representative than the Apostle Paul, actually. Um, the Apostle Paul, I, I remember for a long time I would often hear younger folks in our church, I haven't heard it as much recently, but say to me, I'm, I'm kind of interested in Jesus, but I really struggle with Paul. Even sometimes I'd hear people say, I don't know if I like Paul. And, and, and the reasons are, 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 are various, but sometimes I think they're, they're actually not good reasons. I think they're reasons worth exploring and interrogating, but when you actually see what is Paul really about, you realize what I thought was problematic isn't. For example, a lot of people think Paul is misogynist. They hear things he says, and they wrestle with that. In my view, if you actually explore the original context and look at the heart of Paul's message, it is anything but anti-women. It is a revolutionary, liberatory vision of equality. So people might feel offended by Paul for that, but I don't, I don't think it's a good reason to. I think as you explore it, he's saying the opposite. However, one thing about Paul that people do wrestle with, which I think is accurate, is that Paul is a fighter. Paul is a tell-it-like-it-is figure at points. At points, Paul will will we'll, we'll say things that sound very intense. This is probably the most famous example. He's having this 
in-depth theological argument, and he says, as we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than the one that you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Now, that's not a great translation. It just basically says, let him be accursed. Let him be cut off. And all that is involved in that is complicated. But he says this incredibly, seemingly intense, direct thing. And yet, Paul is also oftentimes called weak. There's a famous example in 2 Corinthians where Paul is talking about the way people experience his presence and his writing. And he says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who, quote, in other words, this is what you think, am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. He goes on later in the chapter to say, I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Paul is accused of both, of being frightening and scary, and yet others, others say he seems really strong and intense, but when you see how meek and gentle is, he's actually just kind of a sniveling academic who sounds really good on paper and is, is nothing in person. Um, I'm not saying anyone here is a sniveling academic. So what is so fascinating about this particular passage in Romans 15 is I think Paul gives us a set of criteria by which to evaluate, am I being too passive or am I being too assertive? And how can I tell the difference? How can I tell when I actually maybe need to be more strong or more direct? And how can I tell when I need to step back and to be humble and to be silent? and to listen, because Paul looks back on the letter to Romans that we've spent this whole year in. In this passage, he's coming to the end, and he kind of tries to explain a bit of what he was doing, and he says, I have written to you quite boldly or audaciously. In other words, I've been very direct and assertive, and I'm gonna tell you why. And this is the first criteria he gives for when you should maybe be assertive or direct. I did it because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. So he goes on to say, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. This grace that he's referring to is not the general grace of salvation that everybody receives. Paul says, I chose to be bold because of the particular grace, the particular calling on my life. Elsewhere, he refers to the grace of apostleship. That's the particular grace he received. He's saying, when I am bold, when I am direct, when I'm willing to fight, it's because what is at issue is my unique calling before God. He goes on to describe in this passage what that calling is. He says something really weird. He basically says, I can't stay in Rome because there's too many Christians. Now, the reason that is weird is if you were thinking of it percentage-wise, there was probably like 0.01% of Rome was Christians. But Paul said, I can't stay because I have a very particular calling. My particular calling is to be the minister, the apostle to the Gentiles, and to do that in a place where there literally is no church in the entire city. Paul amazingly has this incredibly unique sense of this is the particular grace I've been given. And when you look back through Romans at the really intense bits, like Romans 9 when he talks about predestination or Romans 1 when he talks about everyone being under the wrath of God, the reason he's suddenly becoming really direct and really bold and really willing to be offensive is because he's afraid people are excluding the Gentiles. He's very particular about when he decides to fight and when he doesn't. 
In other words, the first criteria of when you should be willing to be assertive and to be direct and to fight is when it gets at your unique calling before God. And while our calling is not the same as Paul's very particular calling to be an apostle to the Gentiles in places where there was no church, you do have a unique calling. You do have a unique thing that God has placed on your heart that he has equipped you for. And I do think when it comes to that, that thing you've invested in, you care about, and you love for, you love, that's the thing you should sometimes be willing to fight for and to be direct about and to be assertive over. Let me, say, let me, let me explain a bit about what I mean by that. I, I've said this before, and it's, com- it's, it's completely true. Okay, I'm more into podcasts at this stage of my life than I've ever been before. And the reason is very simple. When you have a child, you cannot pretend to care for the child while reading a book. You cannot pretend to care for the child while watching telly. You can pretend to care for a child while watching, listening to a podcast, okay? And so that's what I do a lot. Podcasts are the only thing I have left, the only intellectual stimulation. And so I was listening to a podcast in, while cleaning my kitchen, okay, listening to it on my computer out loud, and it was a political podcast, okay? This is a, I'm not going to get into this political issue, but what it was about was the lockdowns. And looking back, it was like a, a, you know, a political debate about were the lockdowns good, should they have been more strict, less strict, Whatever, and so I was getting really heated, you know, doing my washing up, like, yeah, yeah, get him, get him. And my Becky, okay, Becky, my wife, is, if you think of these two sides, some people that are really direct and assertive, and some people that are really passive and gentle and kind, she is definitely the, the, the gentle and kind and, and sweet side of things. But Becky comes barging in and starts, listen, gets enraged at this podcast, okay, and starts screaming at the computer. This just completely lost it. And the reason is because Becky was a nurse during lockdown. And not getting into the politics of what happened, what she was hearing is these people pontificating about this issue and completely ignoring the reality of a NHS that was brought to its knees and that barely made it. She was living every day during the pandemic, not able to do her job, not able to care for people because they were just barely surviving as an organization. And so she got heated and emotional and I could see a tear coming to her eyes as she was, she was kind of unloading about all of this stuff. And I just looked at her and I said, dear, be quiet, I'm listening to a podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that to me is an example of someone, when you see someone in that circumstance, you have, no, you have no part of you that, whether they're right or wrong, there's no part of you that thinks they're too assertive. You're like, this is what you are passionate about. This is what you're invested in. This is what you've researched. And that passion, that directness, is utterly and completely necessary here. Now, there is one challenge for us in this. Is that for us to know our precise calling is a lot more difficult for almost all of us than the Apostle Paul. That very particular thing Paul was called to, to to be an apostle to the Gentiles in places where there was no churches, Paul was basically told by God directly to do that. Now, it is possible that some of you have been told by God directly what your, your calling is, but in almost every circumstance, we haven't been. That's why I really wanted to hear from Adrian this week. We have an ambiguity, an uncertainty. And we have to try to discern through prayer, through community, through looking at our gifts and the way God has made us, what that calling and what that passion might be. And now I am going to be a little bit direct because there is a temptation there. 
there's a temptation to want to avoid that ambiguity and that uncertainty. And it's part of the reason why sometimes we are tempted to listen to tell it like it is direct voices when they're actually not helpful. So I remember one time I was, I went to a church for a very short period of time um, and that church leader, I would say, went on to be one of the church leaders we were talking about earlier. The church was misogynistic. And I don't mean it was misogynistic because of the, the views it had about elders or about pre men or women preaching or anything like that. It was literally misogynistic in that there was multiple instances where there was, a, there was some sort of conflict between a man and a woman or there was even abuse and it was always blamed on the woman. This was literally, I could go into more detail, but literally a misogynistic church culture. And people would often ask, why is it full of women? Why is this misogynistic church nonetheless have loads of women there? And the answer was, to anyone that I think really got to know it, obvious. They were there for the same reason the men were there. We live in a world that is uncertain, that is ambiguous, where we oftentimes don't know the right thing to do. And if someone comes to you and says, there's no ambiguity, there's no uncertainty. When you date someone, you do this. When you marry someone, when you, you do this. When you go to university, you do this. This is what your life is for. Either you obey it or you disobey it, and that's the end of the discussion. That's actually very comforting because it cuts through the uncertain, ambiguous process of trying to figure out who God has called you to be and what he's called you to do. So it's attractive, it can gather a crowd, but it's fundamentally dishonest. It pretends that life isn't as ambiguous and uncertain as it really is. So. That's the first criteria. That first criteria is sometimes you need to be assertive and direct because it touches at what your particular calling is. But Paul gives one other criteria, another criteria to know when you should choose to be bold and when you should choose maybe not to. And the second criteria is this. If we all have an individual unique calling, we also have a corporate shared calling. Paul understands his particular grace or his particular calling of being for the Gentiles as part of a calling that applies to everyone, to all of us. And he describes it this way. He says, look, you know, I, I was bold because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, but then he kind of expands it out. What I'm doing to the Gentiles is in a sense what we're all doing. The priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified or consecrated by the Holy Spirit. That might not sound initially appealing and exciting, but it very much is. If you, you could trace through the whole Bible what it means to be human and what we are here for through the image of priests. The, the garden is set up as a metaphorical temple. Adam and Eve are placed to tend and to keep the garden. Those same words are then used later on to describe the role of priests. Uh, Paul is, the reason this doesn't make a lot of sense to us is because we oftentimes have a very reduced idea of what a sacrifice or an offering is. We oftentimes reduce sacrifices or offerings to just being something that deals with sin. And if that's the case, then how could we be helping one another to be sacrifices or offerings to God isn't sin already dealt with. But a few years ago, we preached, we spent the whole summer preaching through the book of Leviticus. And that might not sound fun to you, 
Uh, but it's, it was fantastic. Leviticus, there is boring books of the Bible. I'm not too pious to deny that. Leviticus is not one. Leviticus is fantastic. And the reason we think it's boring is because we think it's just saying the same thing. I'm a sinner, then we offer a sacrifice or an offering, and then I'm forgiven. The complexity of the, the rituals around sacrifice point to this much deeper idea of sacrifice that Paul is getting at here. A sacrifice, oftentimes, you would, you would choose a perfect, spotless animal. And you would, that animal would ritualistically represent you. It was a way of transforming your vision of self, of saying you think of yourself as a broken, corrupt, sinful person, but because of God's grace, this is who you are now being made to be, someone as pure and spotless as this lamb. And the lamb would ritually, through this sacrificial offering, be taken into the holy of holies. And that was meant to change your view of saying you think you're stuck on the outside, you think you have nothing to offer, and yet God has brought you into the holiest place and made you a pleasing aroma so that you are somehow an ingredient in God's own pleasure and happiness. Sacrifice is about taking us out of our stuckness, our brokenness, our sin, and reorienting and transforming us, and bringing us into the very holy presence of God. And Paul is saying what every one of us is called to do, because he will go on to say we are a kingdom of priests, is to initiate people into that process, to make them see themselves in a new way and to be transformed by the love and grace of Jesus to become a holy offering, sanctified or consecrated for God himself. John Calvin says it this way, the priesthood of the Christian pastor, and we could just say the priesthood of the Christian, is to sacrifice men, as it were, to God. Now this is about everything. This is about an expansive vision is every one of our callings in life, and we are always tempted to reduce it. Paul is picking up on something he talked about just a few chapters before. He says, therefore I urge you brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And spiritual is a very unhelpful translation here. The word is actually rational. This is your rational act. Of worship, And the reason that spiritual is unhelpful, I think, is because it makes us think that what Paul's talking about here is a small set-aside dimension of life. That he's just talking about the spiritual side of things, not something that is about everything. There's a great book by, um, by Alexander Schmemann called For the Life of the World. And the, and the basic argument of the book is that oftentimes we are implicitly secular in the way we think about religion. That even people that are Christians are oftentimes thinking of faith in ways that has basically bought in to a secular atheistic worldview. The basic religion that is being preached and accepted as the only means of overcoming secularism is a, in reality a surrender to secularism. In accepting the very function of religion in terms of promoting the secular value of help. Here's what he means. Many of us think that we can define ourself and our calling before we come to Christ. That we can think about this is who I am, this is what will make me happy, this is the life I want, this is what a functioning, healthy, mentally and physically human being looks like, and if religion is worth anything, it is only worth something insofar as it helps me become the kind of person I already decided I want to be. 
So if religion can help me attain the ends I've already chose for my life, then great, I'm interested. But if it can't, I'm out. It's reducing religion to just this little spiritual corner of existence and saying insofar as that helps the life I've already chosen, then I'm on board. And Paul, being direct, is challenging that. Paul is saying the totality of your being is about being sanctified, consecrated, made a holy offering to God. We've said this a lot in this as we've come to the second half of Romans, but it bears repeating. The gospel is not just you've sinned, Jesus died, and you can be forgiven. It is that, but it is absolutely not just that. It is a program and a promise for the complete renewal and restoration of the human race. One theologian put it this way. A gospel of moralism, that's bad, and a moral gospel, that's good, are not the same thing. The one urges human endeavor as a possible way to God. The gospel doesn't say start doing good things so you can earn your way to God. It, offer it offers it freely. But nonetheless, the other sets forth the privileges and task of actual society with God on the basis of God's disorienting goodness. If you want to experience God's grace, it has to turn your life upside down. It comes to you and say, what you thought would make you happy won't. What you thought a good life is, isn't. You were made for this priestly vocation of something more and better. And therefore, at this point, there is a challenge. Because God comes to each of us and he says, dude, young men, you, you think your life is about playing video games and talking about football? You were made for more. He comes to you and say, you think you'll be happy if you just get the right spouse? Think better of yourself. You were made for a holy, priestly calling. You think that you can be satisfied by flipping through Instagram and TikTok and dressing a certain way and talking a certain way and acting a certain way. You were, this is the challenge. You were made for more than the trivial. You were made to pour yourself out for this holy vocation and calling and nothing else will satisfy your soul. The gospel is a disorienting goodness that transforms our values and transforms us from the inside out. And what that means is we should talk, I believe, quite a bit more, not just about the sin of pride, but about the sin of sloth. Paul says, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. Paul is ambitious, he's hungry. But he's hungry and ambitious for this calling that God has given them. And you can miss that calling by being prideful and thinking it's all about you, or you can miss that calling by being too passive and shrinking back and for living for less than this total vision of human restoration, which is at the heart of the gospel. So how do we then bring these two together? Those are the two criteria Paul gives. Paul says, sometimes you do need to be direct and assertive, and sometimes you need to be quiet and listen and passive and humble. And the two criteria he gives by which to know the difference is, he says, when something touches on your calling, your core thing that you were made to do, or if something touches on our corporate calling, our, our, our calling as a species to present people as holy sacrifices to God, then perhaps you should be bold in those instances. But how then do we bring them together? 
How does the meekness and gentleness of Christ, which Paul talks about, come together with the strength and assertiveness and boldness, which Paul also discussed? I don't think Paul is at his strongest or his most bold when he says that thing in Galatians about if someone preaches, rejects this gospel, let him be accursed. Paul is at his most bold, his most strong, his most assertive in Romans when he uses that same word and says, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. You might notice that many paintings of Paul have a sword. And I always thought that was because, you know, Paul's, it is a kind of assertive, mighty, strong figure. But I don't, I was reading this week, I don't think that is the case. Oftentimes, early church martyrs were depicted with the instrument of their death. That's why St. Andrew, you always see him with a cross. Paul was beheaded. Image after image celebrating this man puts at the heart of him his act of greatest authority and strength and also humility and gentleness and weakness. That this promise wasn't an empty promise. That he literally gave his life for this mission which God had given him to the world. Where do you think he learned to do that? Where do you think he learned that the ultimate example of strength and power is not through crushing your enemies, but through giving yourself for them. You'll have to forgive me by closing with a quote. The last days of Jesus' life are not the story of a good man slowly engulfed by powers too great for him. Holy Week is no accident and no tragedy. The betrayal of Judas, the abandonment of the disciples, the weakness of Pilate, the self-protection of the leaders of the people, none of this corners Jesus or overtakes him. Sin cannot be overcome simply by the pathetic image of a suffering man which we ponder with empathy or even appreciation. God deals with sin by a majestic act of limitless divine power. God himself intervenes in the person of his own son, he shatters sin from within its stronghold in human life. Heavenly Father, may we stand amazed in the presence of the perfect union of gentleness, meekness, and humility with strength, power, and unbridled authority. May we magnify self-giving love as the heart of who you are, as the heart of what it means to be human, and as a true picture of strength. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Let's stand and continue worshiping. Yeah, if you're able, why don't you stand and we will respond in song worship.